Friends, it's great to be with you. It's uh, been great to get to know some of you over the past few weeks, and it's a privilege to open up this passage of Scripture. It's a hard passage uh, with lots going on, so let's pray and ask the God who speaks to speak to each one of us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks, and so we pray now, by your Spirit, speak to each one of us. We pray that we would hear what we need to hear this morning uh, in order to live for you and to get ready to meet you. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. If you knew that by this time next week, Jesus was going to return, how would it impact your plans for this week? If you knew that by this time next week, Jesus would come on the clouds of heaven, that the world was going to end, and that every person on this planet would rise up and stand before him and have to give an account of how they'd lived their lives, what would you do differently this week? Would there be people you'd be eager to meet? Things you'd be eager to say to people? Perhaps things you'd be eager to say to Jesus before you meet him? If you knew that by next Sunday, the kingdom in all of its fullness would come, that there'd be an end of pain, of death, of crying, of mourning, that all those in Christ would experience unending joy, how would it change your plans for this week? Mark 13 that Sean's just read for us is a hard passage. And it's hard in part because Jesus is speaking about the future. And like much prophecy about the future, there are different layers of fulfillment. The the words aren't exhausted in one event. And so Jesus flips between different time frames. And as a result, different people have slightly different views of what exactly Jesus is referring to here. But there are two things, I think, that are crystal clear, pulsating throughout this passage. The first is that Jesus will come again. That is to say, after his death and resurrection, he goes into heaven to, back to his father, and then one day he will come again to judge the world and to save his people, to bring in the kingdom of God in its fullness. That's the first thing that's clear. The second thing that's crystal clear in this passage is the call from Jesus to get ready. Over and over again, phrases like, be alert, be on your guard, be ready, come up again and again, don't they? And Jesus would say to each one of us this morning, are you ready? Are you ready to meet me? And if not, what do we need to do to get ready? As we begin the chapter, Jesus and his disciples are walking out of the temple. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll remember what they're doing there. Uh, The day before uh, in the, the narrative, they, uh, Jesus clear, cleansed the temple. He went in and he drove out the money changers. He said, this is no longer the place where people meet with God. It is in God's king. It is in me. I am the new temple. That's what the symbolism meant. And then the next day, same day as uh, Mark 13, Jesus went back to the temple. And if you were here last week, you remember all kinds of people who tried to trap Jesus, tried to judge Jesus, tried to undermine his authority as God's king. And in each instance, the table were turned. As people thought that they were judging Jesus, it was revealed that they were being judged by God's king. His authority was comprehensively shown. Well, having had those encounters, Jesus and his disciples go out of the temple And in verse 1, we see one of the the disciples commenting on these great buildings. Look at verse 1. Teacher, look. What massive stones. What impressive buildings. And he's got a point. The buildings were phenomenal. 
50 years before, King Herod embarked on a massive building program. And the buildings were truly stunning. They were designed to impress. If you've been to Jerusalem, you still get a sense of that today. But since then, they've been destroyed. They were even more impressive then. Contemporary records tell us that some of the stones Herod used were 13 meters in length. It's kind of the length of a bus. That's maybe the length of the stage. Phenomenal. And remember, this is a time when there's no diggers, no mechanized buildings. And the people aren't used to seeing things like the sky tower on the horizon. This is majestic. But it's not just the, the, the glory of the buildings. It's what they stand for. Because these buildings signify something about God's glory. The solidity of them signify God's promise to his people that he will be with them, that he will protect them. So looking at those buildings and then hearing Jesus' words is something of a shock, isn't it? Yes, they're impressive. But Jesus says, verse 2, not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. It's kind of a mic drop moment, isn't it? There's no response recorded. It's all going to be trashed. Well, the next time we see Jesus and his disciples, they've gone out of the city. Uh, they've gone down a valley and up the other side. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is alone this time with just four of his disciples, James, John, Peter, and Andrew. And they say to him, Jesus, when will these things happen? They ask two questions, actually, didn't they? When will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to take place? And that's really interesting. I think that's often the kind of thing people want to know when they think about the end of the world, when they think about Jesus' return, whether it's the Mayan calendar predicting carefully the end of the world, whether it's people matching words in the Bible onto kind of contemporary events and saying, the end of the world is nigh. People want to know when will it happen. But it's striking that Jesus doesn't give the disciples clues. They're saying, give us some clues, Jesus. Jesus doesn't give them clues, does he? Jesus is not concerned with us figuring out when it will happen. Jesus' concern is that we'd be ready. That we'd be ready to meet him. The message of the first bit of Mark 13 is this. Be alert. There will be many trials before Jesus comes, so be alert. Or if I can put that kind of negatively, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived because there'll be many trials. There'll be many signs that people will say, this is the end of the world. But Jesus hasn't yet come. But he will. So be alert. In the period between Jesus' death and resurrection and his return, it's a period we call the last days. It's that whole period from Jesus' resurrection to his return. There will be many trials of which the destruction of these buildings before Jesus is just one of them. And Jesus' concern is people wouldn't be deceived. Look how he says in verse 5. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. Friends, I wonder if you believe those words. I think if I'm honest, I've always thought that those words are for gullible people. There's no way I'd be deceived. There's no way anyone with an ounce of common sense would be deceived. In 1806... Crowds of people flocked to the northern English town of Leeds. They went to see a chicken. They went to see this chicken that was laying eggs on which was written the message, Christ is coming. And people flocked. And they were convinced that Jesus' return was imminent. Turned out afterwards to be an elaborate hoax 
The owner of the chicken, a lady, a lady called Mary Bateman, had been writing in uh, special ink that uh, corroded the, the shell of the chicken, and then somehow she put the eggs back in the poor chicken. Can you imagine that? And people flocked. And we hear that and we think, it's pretty dumb. When did the Lord ever say that he would communicate by poultry? <laughs> but people were deceived. And I used to think, if you're going to be deceived, you've got to be kind of gullible like that. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? Many will be deceived. It doesn't say gullible people will be deceived. The reason I met some people who'd been deceived or begun to be deceived. Do you know what? They weren't gullible. They were smart people. There were people who were godly, who loved Jesus. There were people in churches like this where we take the word of God seriously. But they'd come into contact with people who were skilled at deception, who were skilled at manipulation, who had an agenda to pull them away from Jesus. And they began to deceive them. And so Jesus says, be on your guard, be alert. We've been here, I think, four Sundays now. One of the things I've been impressed by is when Andrew or Rowan have preached a number of times in these four weeks, they've said, don't take our authority, don't take our word for it, check in the Bible. And Jesus would hardly endorse that. Check what you're hearing is from the Bible. Don't be deceived. I take it part of the reason we meet in connect groups is so that together we can encourage each other with the truth. Because the danger is if we get isolated, then we'll be picked off. Deceivers go for lone, lonely and isolated sheep. Well, Jesus carries on. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. Because till the end, until the return of Jesus, nation will rise up against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines, but it's not the end. These are the beginnings of birth pains. It's as if the whole of creation is in labor. The whole of creation is giving birth to the kingdom of God in its fullness. Now, I know there's been a number of uh, new babies born in the last few weeks, so sorry if this is fresh for some of you. But the thing with birth pains is they are very painful, aren't they? I say that with some authorities if I know. I, I don't personally know that. Although four times I've been in labor and my hand has felt like it's going to be crushed. It's such pain my wife is in. But the thing with birth pains is they're painful, but once the birth happens, something glorious appears. And it's the same with this. These trials are birth pains. They are not the end. Don't be deceived. But the end is near. And then the glorious kingdom in all its fullness will appear. So keep alert. Now, there's a sense, isn't there, that the trials Jesus has mentioned are common to all people. Everyone gets caught up in earthquakes and war. Well, not everyone, but people from all, uh, all kinds of places, not just Christians. All kinds of people get caught up in these things. But Jesus goes on to say there are certain things that Christians will be caught up in. So verse 9, be on your guard. Because people will persecute us. And Jesus first speaks here, I think, to the apostles. It is they who will be hauled before courts and flogged in synagogues, called to speak before kings. But it's clearly broader than them, isn't it? Families will turn in on themselves. So much so that Jesus can say, verse 13, you will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is saying this so we won't lose heart when it's hard we won't be deceived, but we'll endure. The Apostle Paul says somewhere else, 
anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Striking words on there. Anyone who wants to live wholeheartedly for Jesus will at times be persecuted. So don't be surprised when opposition comes. Jesus says, be on your guard. Not so you can avoid it. Not so you can see it coming and then duck it. If we're to live wholeheartedly for Jesus, we can't avoid this. We can only avoid it if we stop being wholehearted. But when it comes, we can endure. Because after these trials come, Jesus will come and wipe away the tears. He will comfort us. So endure to the end when we will be saved. If you're somebody here who's checking out Jesus, it's so great that you're here. It's so great that you can hear Jesus' claims from Mark as he says these words. But do you see how kind it is of him to say this? There's no small print with Jesus. So often when somebody's trying to persuade you something, they, they put all their best arguments, all the, all the blessings first, don't they? And then there's a whole tale of small print that they hide away. Jesus doesn't do that, and isn't it kind? He says, if you will follow me, there will be great blessings. Your sins are forgiven. You'll know the Father. You'll have eternal life. But there will also be great cost. He said earlier, hasn't he, you need to pick up your cross and follow me. Here he's saying there's a chance you'll be hated. Colleagues will think oddly of you. People will smirk at you and laugh at you. Some will lose their families. But it is worth it because Jesus is coming back. Endure to the end. Once heard the story of a Fijian Christian. He's now a church leader. And uh, he was investigating the claims of Jesus. He was from a Hindu background. And then one day he heard the name of Jesus. And he began to read about Jesus in the scriptures. And he quickly realized that Jesus spoke for the true God. And he realized all the things he'd heard up until his uh, adulthood, they weren't true. The way to get to know God was through Jesus. And he quickly fell in love with this Jesus who gave his life for him. And one day with great excitement, he went home to his family. And he said to his mom, his his, da- his mom, his dad, his sisters, we've got to get to know Jesus. Jesus is the way to the Father. He loves us. Let's go and find out about him. And his father looked at him with anger in his eyes and said, if you follow Jesus, you betray this family. If you want to follow Jesus, get out tonight. And so with tears, with sadness, that young man left. He prayed for his family. But he loved Jesus, who loved him, put him first, and it was costly. But it will be worth it because one day he will meet Jesus and he prays that his family will too. Friend, if you're in a moment of trial, if life is hard, do you see what Jesus says to you this morning? Endure to the end because one day I will come and rescue you. Stand firm. Well, in 14 to 21, Verses 14 to 21, Jesus talks about a particular trial. And there are many allusions and references in this section. It's it's kind of hard to understand. But look at verse 14. Jesus says, When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. And we think, thanks, Mark, for the heads up. Let the reader understand. But we don't really understand. (laughs) Well, this abomination of desolation is an allusion, I think, to a prophecy in the book of Daniel. 
Daniel was written about 600 years before Jesus is speaking. And in the prophecy, this abomination of desolation is an act of sinfulness that's connected to the temple and to sacrifice. And it looks like the first fulfillment of that prophecy comes about 140 years before Jesus, uh, 160 years before Jesus, in 168 BC. And the Greek king uh, called Antiochus Epiphanes IV invaded Jerusalem in 168 BC. He captured the city and he marched into the temple. And when he's in the temple, he set up an idol to Zeus, the Greek god Zeus. Now, if you're a Jew and you worship the one true God, that is deeply offensive, isn't it? If somebody set up an idol here on this stage, it would be deeply offensive, wouldn't it? But what's more, they didn't just set up an idol. This king took a pig. Remember for Jews, pigs are unclean animals. They don't even touch pigs. He took a pig and offered it on the altar. An abomination of desolation defiles the temple. Well, Jesus references that prophecy in Daniel. And he seems to say there's another fulfillment. This time after Jesus, about 40 years from when Jesus is speaking, in AD 70. This time another non-Jewish general will enter the temple, a Roman general called Titus, and he will capture Jerusalem and he will march into the temple. He will go into the Holy of Holies, the place where only the high priest can go in, and that once a year. And in the temple, he will steal many of God's holy artifacts, and then he will burn the temple. These stones before him will be cast down. And if that is what Jesus is referring to, then the people in Judea at that time are to flee to the mountains, aren't they? And the ancient church historian, a man called Eusebius, writing about 250 years after Jesus, says that is exactly what happened. When the Romans came, the church fled and they were saved because they fled. Now, I think that is what Jesus is referring to. I wouldn't go to the stake for it. There'll be other interpretations. You might want to talk to me about it afterwards. But I think that's what he's talking about. But even in the midst of that, do you see what Jesus is doing? He's not so much concerned to point to this event, to give clues to this event. His application of it comes in verse 21. 21 to 23, where he says, there will be many false messiahs. There will be many false prophets who will try and steal you away from me, deceive you. So be on your guard. Keep watch. And that is Jesus' point to us this morning. There will be many trials until he comes. Many times when we'll think, I should give up. When we'd be tempted to give up, and he says, don't, stay alert, keep watch. Because Jesus will certainly return. That's the second thing I want us to see this morning. Jesus will certainly return. Have a look at verse 24. More words that seem slightly strange to our ears. But in those days, after that tribulation, probably after the destruction of the temple, certainly the events Jesus has been mentioning, then the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. There's a sense that all the other trials have been localized, haven't they? An earthquake just affects one area. This affects the whole of creation. The stars in the sky go dark. Now, this is prophetic language. We should think of this as a kind of vision, a, a dream, not a video. It's not a documentary of what's going on. So we mustn't push the language too far. 
But Jesus seems to have in mind prophecies in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 13, where Isaiah talks about the day of judgment. Hear these words. Look, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the earth a desolation and to destroy its sinners. Indeed, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shine. I will punish the world for its evil and wicked people for their iniquities. Do you see how that kind of resonates with what Jesus has said? And in that day when it goes dark, people will see the Son of Man. That's the name Jesus has been using for himself, hasn't, isn't it, throughout Mark. People will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. It's another reference to an Old Testament prophecy, this time to Daniel 7. And in the context, it's, it's the scene of a courtroom. The courtroom is laid out. And then we, see, then we hear these words. Again, I think in the context of final judgment. One, like a son of man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. And friends, do you see the point? After these great trials, this time of judgment will come. And Jesus will come on the clouds. He will end the world. The world will end not by some nuclear holocaust or, or environmental disaster, although it may involve that, but by Jesus' personal return. And when he comes, he will judge the world, those who refuse, refuse to acknowledge his kingship. Those who refuse to come out to God will be punished. And Jesus will gather his people and bring them into his kingdom in all its fullness. And on that day, when we marvel that the judge is the one who paid for our sins, we haven't done anything to be good, to earn that. All we've done is trusted in Christ that he has paid for our sins, made us his. For many, it will be a horrendous day, but it will also be a joyous day. And friends, think what that means. Then there will be no more suffering, no more disappointments, no more longing for things to be the way we expect they should be, no more sin. We will not sin against other people. They will not sin against us but there will be joy with Christ forever. I wonder if you really believe that's going to happen. I wonder if you really believe Jesus is going to come back. I remember a time when I was a baby Christian. been a Christian maybe three or four months. I was 19 probably. And I plucked up the courage to invite a friend to church. And he said yes. I was amazed and I thought great and I remember sitting in church and being so thrilled at what he was hearing the preacher spoke the gospel so warmly he told of Jesus coming to earth to save sinners he explained how all of us are sinners all of us have turned from God and rebelled against God but God loves us so much that Jesus laid down his life on the cross that we might be forgiven if we just believe he spoke so warmly, so powerfully of the resurrection, gave evidence to prove how the, the scriptures give that as the best possible explanation of what happened after Jesus died. I remember thinking, I'm so glad he's here. And then my heart sank. And I realized the preacher was beginning to speak about the return of Christ. And I thought, please don't go there. I almost prayed in my heart, please stop now, please don't go there. Up until now, everything had seemed so winsome and, and, and convicting. The return of Christ just sounds weird. Has anyone ever thought like that? Maybe just me. <laughs> it's worrying. 
If that's how we think, Jesus would say to us, we need to hear the lesson of the fig tree. I'm no expert on trees. Is anyone an expert on trees? It's always a little bit worrying. I've heard this about fig trees. If I'm wrong, come tell me afterwards. But I've heard that fig trees only come into full leaf just before summer. So most of the other plants are out and green and looking good, but the fig tree hasn't. And then just before summer, in, in kind of one hit, all of the leaves come out and it looks wonderful. And apparently when that happens, you, you know summer's about to come. And Jesus is saying, learn the lesson of the fig tree. That's what fig trees do. Well, in the same way, when you see these signs, these trials, know that my return is near. Look at verse 29. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near at the door. Jesus goes on, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And you see his logic? He's saying all these things, these persecutions, the, the destruction of these buildings, they have happened in that generation, just as Jesus said. We can find out about that in the history books. Jesus spoke the truth. So in the same way, what he's saying about the, his return is also true. Learn the lesson of the fig tree. His words will not pass away. Friend, if you're investigating who Jesus is, you, you may have seen these last few weeks many reasons to believe that Jesus' word is trustworthy. If not, why not come to explaining Christianity and hear those things? We, there's many reasons we can trust these words. Jesus says they will not pass away. So he will return. Jesus will certainly return. But the final question is this. Are we ready? Are you ready to meet Jesus? Jesus says he could come at any time. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Isn't that an interesting thing to say? So many people claim they know. So many cranks. I, I know, I've got a sense He's going to, oh, you know, 2,000 years from his death, that's in sort of 2033, maybe he'll come then. When people say that, they claim to know more than Jesus. Jesus himself says he does not know. If somebody's telling you they know when he's coming, they don't. But Jesus, do you see why Jesus says that? Nobody knows so keep watch. Be alert for you don't know when the time is coming. And so Jesus gives us this story at the end to make the point really clear, doesn't he? It's like a man going on a journey. And he gives authority to his servants. He gives them jobs to do. And he tells them, be ready, because one day I'll come back. And you can see how that maps onto Jesus, can't you? He goes to his Father in heaven, and he gives authority to the church. He gives authority to us to go out into the world and make disciples. And he commands us to be alert, to be captivated by him, to be living for him, and be ready, because he'll come back. Well, the question is for us, are we ready for him coming back? Or have we got drowsy? Are we falling asleep? Look at the end of that little story. If we're asleep, then when he come, comes suddenly, he might find us sleeping. And then Jesus underlines it. What I say to you, to you four disciples, I say to everyone, be alert. Couldn't be clearer, could it? Friend, if you're somebody checking out Jesus, it is so wonderful. You've got things to ask, things to investigate. Can I encourage you to do that? There's a sense you need to take time to find out who Jesus is, and yet there is a sense of urgency. We can't just keep 
searching forever. And there may be some who actually, you know enough to make a decision. You know enough to, to commit to Jesus as your king, to ask him to forgive you, to give your life to him. What's holding you back? Because the reality is one day Jesus will return. And then either we will meet him as our king whom we love, who's given his life for us, or we'll meet him as the great king on the crowds of heaven, our enemy. Jesus says, be ready. Are you ready? The story is told of three devils. Clearly not a true story. Uh, But three devils in training. And they're being trained by a senior devil how to deceive people. And he says to them, look, I want you to go to earth and to deceive some people. But I want to know your strategy before you do. And I'm going to grade your strategy. It's kind of like their final exam as junior tempters in a devil training school. As I said, it's not a true story. Um, And the first devil says, okay, I'll take the challenge. I'm going to go up and I will tell people there's no God. And the senior devil looks at him a bit dismissively and says, that's a C, maybe a C minus. Because deep down, humans know that there is a God. You won't deceive many like that. The second devil says, I'll go to the humans and I'll tell them there's no judgment. And he says, well, that's better. But really, that's a B because most humans know that the world is a mess. It needs sorting out. It needs judging and putting right. But you'll deceive some. And then the third devil says, I'll go to the humans and I'll say there is a God. There is a judgment, but you've got time. Take your time. And the senior devil says, that's great. That's an A-plus strategy. That will deceive many. And Jesus says to us, do not be deceived. Friend, check out Jesus. But do you see the urgency? We must be ready when he comes. But friends, if we are followers of Jesus, if Jesus is our king, are we living alertly? Are we doing the job he's given us with great zeal? Has anyone ever fallen asleep at, a, at the wheel? I don't know, maybe, maybe don't put your hands up to that. Might be, <laughs> might be, might be a criminal offense. I, I've once fallen asleep at the wheel. I've always thought that's a kind of dumb thing to do, a bit like being deceived. Only gullible people do that. Until the day that I fell asleep at the wheel. And I remember really clearly, I was about 18, I'd passed my test a year before, and I was living in Cyprus, so kind of hot, beautiful summer's evening, and I'd been visiting a friend in the next town, it was about a 25-minute drive, and I was driving back in the middle of the night, and I could feel my eyelids getting heavy. I wound down the window, and I could feel my eyelids still closing. And then they closed for a second, and do you know what I felt? I felt ecstasy. Everything in my body was saying to me, just close your eyes. I tried to prop them open. And then it drooped again. And everything in my body was saying, just fall asleep. And my head's going, that's the dumbest thing, but my body, fall asleep. And it was like ecstasy. It felt so right. And the problem is, that's what it's like to fall asleep. And the danger is, you could be a follower of Jesus, but nearly asleep. And it feels so good. And it's dangerous. So Jesus says, be alert. Many ways to be asleep, aren't there? We've seen a few in this passage. Think of that first disciple. He's been with Jesus in the temple, listening to Jesus all day, and yet somehow his heart is captivated by great buildings. And friends, it's easy, isn't it, for our hearts to be captivated by things other than Jesus. Good things. I loved in the kid's story that it was good things that deceived those guards, wasn't it? A career. We want to make a good career to serve our families. 
a relationship. We're chasing a relationship, and suddenly it captivates our heart. Or, or the DIY project, or the, or the new home, or, or the, the grades in university, or, or whatever it is. And if we're not careful, it captivates our heart, and spiritually we're getting sleepy, and all of it's saying, just fall asleep. And Jesus says, wake up. Be alert. Friend, if that's you this morning, do you hear what Jesus is saying to you? Stay awake. Or it could be that we're being deceived. That actually something has persuaded us that Jesus isn't coming back. Or if he is coming back, he's not coming back for a long time, so it doesn't matter to affect my diary. It doesn't need to affect my priorities. A long time ago, I once put in my diary a repeated reminder. Four o'clock every day, it said, Jesus may return. And uh, it pinged every day. And for about three days, it was great. It reminded me, and then it just got annoying. I'd just automatically snooze it. But it was kind of useful. If I looked onto a, a, an event in the future, I was putting, you know, Aunt Mabel's birthday in my diary in, in June. I'd say, oh, there's something in there. Ah, oh, Jesus may return. Just help correct my thinking. If you've been deceived, what is it that you might need to do to remember Jesus may return so that it affects your diary? Or it could be persecution. Maybe you know that if you're honest, the pressures to follow Jesus, the, the pushback from the world, it's just got too much for you. And you go to a room and nobody knows you're a Christian, and rather than volunteer, you keep it down. I don't, I don't want to say that. I, I wouldn't deny it. I just don't want to say it. I personally think if, if somebody came to me tomorrow morning and said, if you don't, if you don't deny Jesus, you're going to prison. I, I I like to think I'd say, without a shadow of doubt, okay, I'll go to prison. I'm not going to deny Jesus. But put me in a room where nobody knows me, and I know I'll get a bit of flack if I, if I put my head above the parapet. I'm tempted to keep it down. I know I need to have a conversation to, to persuade someone of Jesus' love for them. They need to repent and believe the gospel. But I know if I do, I might get pushback, so I keep my head down. And if I'm not careful, I'm dragged into sleep. And Jesus says, whatever it is, whether it's uh, captivated by something else, whether it's being deceived, whether it's uh, persecution and suffering, whether it's something else, are we alert? Friend, if you knew Jesus was coming back this week, what would you change? How would your diary change? How would your actions change this week? We have no idea if he's coming back this week. Nobody does, only the Father. But we do know he is coming back. And so if there are things you would change, maybe you need to make those changes this week to be ready for Jesus' return. Let's just take a moment to reflect on what God has said to us. Maybe say in the quiet of my heart, God, help me to be ready. And then I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, thank you so much for Jesus' kindness in warning us to be ready. We thank you that he has given his life, that we can be reconciled to you, that we can come back and know you as our heavenly father, that we can love you and be sure of spending eternity with you in your presence. So thank you for your loving warning to be ready, not to fall asleep. And we pray, dear Father, for any of us who are beginning to be sleepy, any of us who are not ready, we pray, help us to be ready. For Jesus' sake. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. 
So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.